It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world with its own needs. Let me give your own head, beat it up, and I've seen that no sheets. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down, like fire in a fire. This is the southern gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're eating it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of, thankfully... Doom <laughs> and Bloom. That's right. Welcome to the very thankful Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour on Thanksgiving, an interval of interest in an insidious world. That's what we are. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find a thousand post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. Nurse Amy? Yes. I am, Who are you? <laughs> I'm Amy Alton, and I am also known as Nurse Amy. I am a certified nurse midwife and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. And together we are the dynamic duo, the prodigious pair, the courageous couple, the spectacular spouses. <laughs> and we're here to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? With a prurient possum, while our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship. Patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, but when someone gets hurt or injured, will you know what to do? Will you act or will you just be a bystander, a standing by bystander, just standing by? Well, <laughs> you probably should if you have more sense than a barrel full of bananas, demonstrate that you know what's going on by learning what to do for injuries and illness in times of trouble. And while you're at it, get some supplies and maybe a medical kit to go along with all that knowledge. And what better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. I mean it. They'll help you handle medical issues you'll face in any disaster. And they're designed by, guess who? Nurse Amy, and indeed, this old guy right here you're listening to. <laughs> Compare our kits for contents, quality, cost with anybody else's stuff, please. And Or you could just ask anyone who's ever bought one. I'll take that way, too. Or go through American Survival Guide's latest gear recommendations. Well, you know what? we got a lot of different people that say that our kits 
are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. Hey, we learn as much from you as you do from us, and that's pretty obvious. So get in gear, dear, and reach out to the queen and the codger. It is so easy. (laughs) Here's the lovely nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. Contact us anytime by writing to us at drbones, that's B-O-N-E-S, podcast, what you're listening to, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at AOL.com. You can find us on Facebook at Doom and Bloom. You can also find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Uh, Look for us on Twitter, very simple, at Prepper Show. And let's see. Oh, we have a YouTube channel. That's right. At Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. With I think I have 175 videos now. Wow, that sounds good. We'll, We're getting there. I think and we have another one coming up. I am putting another one up today, which is uh, November. What are we at? 25th. Yep. 24th. 25th. One of those days. 25th. Super Saturday. Oh yes. Yes, that's right. Oh my gosh! Can you imagine what the Cyber ma- Monday the Super malls Saturday, look like Friday. today? Oh yeah. <gasps> Must be crazy, oh. baby. Although, really, everyone stay home and drink hot chocolate and buy all your <laughs> stuff online. That's the way it is. Just go. You can go to our place and buy our stuff online. Of yeah. course. Yeah. <laughs> hey, have you ever wondered if what's the deal with those fish antibiotics people in the preparedness community you keep talking about? Well, did you know that we wrote the first article ever written by a doctor and nurse practitioner on the subject and why they might stop unnecessary deaths in times of trouble? Well. Now you can learn all there is to know about them in our new book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibiotics in Austere Settings. Our book's a unique, simplified guide to using antibacterial and antifungal veterinary medications is meant to help the non-medical professional in disaster survival and other austere settings where modern medicine is non-existent. Our book tells you in plain English what you need to know about these antibiotics, including how to obtain and use them safely. The aquatic and avian antibiotics described in this book, they're known to be essentially identical to human versions, and they're available over the counter for emergency storage and preparedness only, by the way. This is a -a one-of-a-kind book, folks, from people who have treated everything from human beings to tilapia with antibiotics for infections over their long career. And I don't think there's anybody else that can make that claim. Homesteaders, outdoorsmen, medical missionaries, ocean voyagers, anybody in remote areas, and, of course, folks in the preparedness community are going to find this book an indispensable tool in circumstances where the ambulance is not just around the corner. We discuss how to identify and treat both common and uncommon infectious disease, including some that might become epidemics if a true long-term disaster ever hits. Fish antibiotics, as well as a limited number of bird antibiotics, we describe them in detail, including their uses, their side effects, their dosing, pretty much everything you need to know about them in any situation where modern medicine is not accessible. There's additional content that helps guide you with regards to taking on that overwhelming responsibility of caring for illnesses in catastrophic settings. This book is the perfect companion and supplement to the Survival Medicine Handbook, and I'll help you think outside the box in ways that might save a life in some future catastrophe. Remember, this book is not for normal times. It is for situations where there is not a modern medical system in existence. You can find the book on Amazon and also on our website, doomandbloom.net or store.doomandbloom.net. You know, I often get the question, what do I do about third-degree burns if I don't have a burn unit nearby? That's certainly a very, very good question. There are some 
where the damage goes deeper than just your epidermis, the superficial layer of the skin you're looking at, uh, or the layer right underneath it that's part of the skin, uh, by w which, by the way, is the biggest organ in your body. And that's called the dermis. And when they go through those two layers and go all the way through and go into other tissue, that's called a third-degree burn. Third-degree burns penetrate not only the full thickness of the skin, but they can go into fat, they can go into muscle, it can go into bone and destroy a lot of tissue. Third-degree burns have a different appearances based on what caused it. They could look charred, they could be white in color, they could be dry, they could look wet. I mean, it just all depends on the type of damage that has occurred. These burns appear indented if you've lost a lot of tissues. So there are electrical burns, there are scald burns, there are all sorts of different kinds of burns. The problem with third degree burns is that your skin is the, well, it is your Protection. armor, right? It Protection. is your suit of armor. If you have a crack in your suit of armor or a chink in your suit of armor, well, you know what's going to happen to you is bacteria and all sorts of stuff that's not supposed to, that may, may be actually okay on your skin, but not inside your body. They're going to go ahead and flood into their and what's going to happen is you're going to get some really crazy infections. Also, skin keeps the fluids in your body in, so you will lose a lot of fluids and become severely dehydrated very, very fast. So a lot of different issues that are very complex with regards to skin. Plus, in the healing process, where are you going to get more skin to cover up the area where you lost your skin? You don't grow back much skin, so you exactly. need things like skin grafts and all sorts of stuff. what happens is, the body tries to heal itself, so it's just going to form a lot of scar tissue. And if you need mobility right. in that area, you know, scar tissue is okay if it's, say, on your forearm, you know, a, a small amount. But if you're talking about an elbow or a knee or your hands, I mean, there are just certain areas where that skin needs to be stretchy. Yeah. And scar tissue doesn't give you that mobility. It reminds me of a friend of mine who was a resident at Jackson Memorial Hospital with me. He had a terrible third-degree burn, spent months in the hospital when he was a teenager. He was a surfer, and yes. he was cleaning his board with kerosene, which apparently was a thing back then. And uh, somehow somebody was smoking nearby or something like that and indeed ignited his entire garage and with him in it. I remember his right arm, he could not fully extend it, and that was because of scar tissue at the elbow. So this is pretty serious stuff. It is really serious. And he's lucky he survived. He showed me his burn. He's uh, He was also um, a doctor here in South Florida. Remember, yes. I went to see him yes. once, and he showed it to me. It was it was really crazy. Yeah, but you know what terrible. he did? He just moved on. Right, he went, had a great went attitude. To school. Yep. He he went to medical school. He became a doctor, and he continued to surf. Right, he and was... you know what? A body is just a, a shell for us. You know, we're really the people that are on the inside. That's right, he not the a, outside. Well, he had a lot of intestinal fortitude, and I certainly good admire. For, I him know it was he was a good guy. Well, when a person gets burned, you know what? It's really important to well remove them from the heat source, of course, but you also need to run cool water over really any degree of burn, first, second, or third, for a period of time as soon as possible after the injury. Cool water is preferable to ice, however, because skin, the skin is traumatized, and ice will be more traumatic to already damaged tissue than just cool water. Uh, it's very important also to remove rings, jewelry, bracelets, things like that. Swelling is something you really commonly see in these kinds of injuries.
The skin no longer exists in these burns, so infection is very likely. It's not just dehydration, it's, and it is infection as well. So you need to cover the wound to try to form some kind of barrier for microbes to not be able to get in. There is something called Spenko second skin. That's an option as a burn wound cover. Sealox uh, combat gauze, you know, we've talked about that as a type of blood clotting agent. We've talked about that a lot in our active shooter series. And that could serve as a burn dressing as well. What you need to do is to wet it, and so it becomes this sort of slimy dressing. You wrap it around the burn area, and it serves as a protectant. Now, you can't wrap very tightly. That's something that's very important. But It's very cooling, too. We've used it for a burn dressing for me. It almost feels like you're putting a, a cool compress on. Exactly. Not cold, but, you know, it's... It's just soothing. that cool gel. Yeah, yeah, it is soothing. Celox isn't affected, by the way, by whether you have blood clotting factors in your system or not. So, Or if you take blood thinners. Right. It still works as well as it does for people who don't take it. So I think that's a slight advantage. Another common treatment for burns, especially significant burns, are things like sylvadine. Sylvadine is a combination of silver and an antibiotic called sulfadiazine, and that is helpful in preventing infections in even people that have third-degree burns. I have to say that if you have more than a certain percentage of your body, maybe about 10% of your body, that's covered with third-degree burns, well, your chances of survival really drop without major help. And when I say major help, I'm talking about ICU burn unit kind of help, high-technology kind of help, people who have these kinds of injuries in a survival setting, well, you know what? They are going to have a more difficult time surviving than in normal times. And a matter of fact, I would say that any burn that's more than a, an inch or two in diameter probably would require a, a skin graft to heal completely. And Absolutely. It's, it's, just it's just too much work mess. for the body to have to fill in that deeply. It's the shallower wounds that you know, still take a long time, especially depending on your age. I'm finding every year that things just heal just a little bit slower. It's crazy. I never thought that would be something that I would have to deal with. Well, the older folks and younger and very young children, these are the ones that have the worst outcomes. If you're a strong, healthy adult, young adult. Young adults. That's that's a wonderful thing. (laughs) Under the age of 45, I'd say after 45, you just notice cuts, you know, and scrapes just hang out a little bit longer than they did before. Especially maybe at the ends of your extremities. Like if you look at your lower legs, you might have less hair. You might notice skin changes there occur before anywhere else in your body so you really want to avoid cuts and and burns right so why i don't shave my legs in the winter me neither too bad <laughs> i only shave them in the summer you <laughs> know what if, if you can't live with a little bit of hair on my legs and, you know tough tough yeah. tooties and there, same thing buddy. with you <laughs> i live with a lot of hair on your legs <laughs> You're my fuzzy bear. (laughs) All right, so let's talk a little bit about alternative burn treatments. You are the medic. It's a survival scenario. You're off the grid. So what do you do? Now, well, there are indeed various plants that other 
substances that may have properties that could help you help a burn to heal, even if no modern supplies were necessary. So let's talk a little bit about those. Now, of course, they work better for first and second degree burns rather than third, but worth a shot, right? Well, one of the most popular of these is aloe vera, and studies have shown that aloe vera helps new skin cells form and speeds healing, and it's an excellent option for especially first and second degree burns. So what you do is you take an aloe leaf, you cut it open, either scoop out the gel or rub the open leaf directly on the burned area. It's pretty simple. And you reapply that on a regular basis several times a day, four to six times a day maybe. And the simplicity of this and the, the fact that aloe vera grows in a bunch of different climates. We have it down here in South Florida where it's very humid. You would think it's like a desert kind of plant. But we've had people we have tell lots us, of rain here. Well, and we've had lots of people tell us that they have aloe plants in strange, crazy places, strange locations that I never thought that an aloe would survive. So it's a hardier plant than you think. And when we have been planting medicinal plants <laughs> in our garden and around our house, uh, basically, it's if it survives, great. If it doesn't. Sorry, it's just not something that's going to grow around. But we have things that do grow that I'm kind of surprised about. So you can try it. You right. never know. Like I said, you would think aloe vera needs a dry climate. We're not dry here, certainly. Not in the And least. our aloe vera grows just, just fine. Just fine, right. Absolutely. Now, there are many articles on burn remedies that include things like vinegar. Vinegar, just about any type seems to work as an astringent. It's an antiseptic. It helps to prevent infections. It is very cooling, and it does. It sounds like the opposite thing of what you would want to put on a burn. It is really soothing. You make a compress. If you take, uh, you could do a 50-50 or you could do 25% vinegar. It doesn't have to be terribly strong, but just in a bowl of water. And then put a washcloth in there or some cold cotton or some 4 by 4 gauzes and apply compresses. Just very soothing. If you have the ability to have a bath, you could put a goodly amount of vinegar in. I'm not going to tell you exactly how much because I don't know how big your bathtub is. Don't make the water too hot. Make it warm and put the vinegar in and get in there and soak and stay in there. As the water cools off, you will feel so much better if you have, say, you know, your legs got burned or your back got burned. Uh, it is just really, really soothing. Right. If you only have the ability to have compresses, don't have a bath, make the vinegar a 50-50 solution with water. Right. And cover the burn completely and re-soak the compresses when they start to feel warm. It's incredible how and, it cools it right. off. And there's no limit Seriously. to how often you can apply vinegar soaks. That you're talking about, I want to make sure that people say start with tepid water. Exactly. That's and, what I'm saying. Not right. too hot. Exactly. That's important. If the, the burn is on the torso, you just have a little bit of water. You could take a cotton t-shirt and soak it in vinegar, and that may give you some relief as well. I've <laughs> gone to sleep many times with that when I lived. Well, I've been down here in South Florida, but when we went out boating or skiing or... Yep. Hiking or camping. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All the outdoor things that we we did yeah. for fun. Uh, well, there you go. And, and in so, the hot summer sun. And something similar is uh, that's good for cooling off is a witch hazel compress. I mean, you use the uh, extract of the bark, which it decreases inflammation. It certainly soothes a first-degree first burn really well. You would soak a cloth in full-strength witch hazel, apply it right to the burned area, and reapply as frequently as you need to. That's now, the next chair I want to buy, by the way. Okay. Hey, oh, yeah. Hey, witch hazel. That would be yeah. awesome. I love that. 
Uh, elderflower comfrey leaf uh, decoctions, as they say, um, are an excellent remedy for burns as well. If you have never heard of the word decoction, it's an extraction of the crushed herbs produced by boiling. And so using uh, lower water temperatures, that makes a tea. If you use boiling water, then uh, and extract the crushed herbs, uh, that extract is called decoction. Now, the decoctions of these plants can be used for compresses. It can be uh, applied directly to the burned area with a, a gauze cover. That's called a poultice. That's, so here are some of these old-timey terms that you probably haven't heard for a long time, and these are crushed up ways that you herb. can de- actually yep. put together herbs so that they can actually give you some healing effect. Uh, black tea leaves, they have tannic acid that helps draw heat from a burn. You put two or three tea bags in cold water, cool water rather, for a few minutes. Use the water with compresses or just apply that to the burned area. If your patient has to be mobile, well, you make a stay-in-place poultice out of two or three wet tea bags and simply place the cool, wet tea bags right on the burn and wrap them with a piece of gauze or some tape to hold them in place. Uh, people have also used milk or, and yogurt. Uh, they help cool and hydrate the skin after a burn. You wrap some um, whole milk or full-fat yogurt uh, in gauze or cheesecloth cloth, uh, and you know soak it up real good. Use that as a compress. That would be uh, worthwhile. These compresses usually remove as they become warm themselves. And then, of course, there's the baking soda bath. Take a quarter of a cup of baking soda, add that to a, a warm bath, and soak for at least... 15 minutes uh, or at least until the water cools off. Right. So there are some that are very useful. Now, there are some essential oils that can be used on first or second degree burns. Not all of them can, um, but uh, lavender oil is one of them. And uh, it what you do is you mix lavender or tea tree oil, that's another one, uh, that will help with pain due to stinging from the burn and maybe promote tissue healing. This is something you would apply over the burned area in a dilute form uh, and very thinly. Uh, loose covering of gauze maybe over that may be helpful for second-degree burns. Absolutely. Now, although those oils may be helpful because in dilute form, other real fats like butter or lard, which is commonly uh, in the past used for, was commonly used for burns in the past. They actually hold in the heat, and so they are not to be used in the treatment of burns. So it's something that's important for you to realize. Now, uh, you can also make a poultice of calendula. Calendula is that well, I had never pronounced that right. I know calendula. Calendula, uh, and that's I might as well just say marigold petals. <laughs> and, you know, and and pound them with uh, some wheat germ oil or olive oil, and then spread that lightly over the burned area. That's also helpful. There are so many different, wow, so many different. There really are. Natural burn remedies, but one of the best ones, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I found something very interesting in uh, one of these thousand Christmas gift catalogs that Uh came to the house. What's that company? Hammer. Hammer Schlemmer. Schlemmer. Hammer Schlemmer. (laughs) I call it Hammer Schlemmer. Yeah. (laughs) So what is Hammer Schlemmer? What is Hammer Schlemmer? They have a little miniature copper distiller. Oh. Did you see it? Yeah, it's very cool. We have one of those, but I don't. I don't think we got it from this place. 
And I got to tell you, though, distilling your own essential oil is a heck of a job. You know, you got a you got an acre of lavender. You get about a ga- I don't know twelve gallons or something like that of oil in total. Of course, that is a lot of oil if you realize how much you use. But you don't get. I, I mean, it takes a lot of that stuff to make anything. So I just don't know if these little distilleries are of much use. I was not mentioning it as a prepper. <laughs> oh, just as a thing. cute cute thing. I was mentioning it as something. Very cute that if oh. you wanted to, you know, do tiny little experiments uh, well, with certain herbal leaves. I mean, it's it's small. If you weren't going to get more than a drop of anything. So that's it, ladies and gentlemen. You want to listen to the cutest podcast in town? Just listen it's to the miniature, Doom and Bloom Survival Miniature Copper Distiller. Hour. It's is very cute. So cute. Oh. I remember using mine. Yes. I'm... We got Malaluca leaves, which is tea tree. Yes, I remember. Because we have Malalukas everywhere. Everywhere around here. Everywhere. Invasive species. Everywhere, everywhere. Around here. But they do have tea tree oil that you can get out of them. So that's something. We ended up with a couple drops of tea tree oil. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not easy. It wasn't folks. easy. Wasn't Buy easy. your oils now. Right. <laughs> Before Believe me yes. when I tell you. <laughs> yeah, I think people really will probably be most will be using teas more than anything else because they're simpler to make. They, a lot of time you can just take the leaves off the uh plants or you maybe you have to dry them for a while things like that, but teas are probably a lot easier. That's why we included a chapter on teas in our um, third edition so much of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The well, Essential Well, after we used that little distiller, I thought, oh my gosh. Well, I wasn't going to invest in a big giant one. No. Nope. They are very expensive. No. Nope. You're talking about a lot of copper there. But it was it was fun to to realize how much work that these manufacturers of these oils um, small batch. I like Mountain Rose herbs, folks, by the way. If you're thinking about getting some oils, they do make them small batch. It's family owned. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a group of really nice hippie herbalists, Birkenstock wearing. They are totally into their herbal medicine and they want organic. So they're real careful about what they choose and how they process it. So you know you're getting high quality and I don't work for them. I just have met them when we've gone to some Mother Earth shows. And right. they're amazing people. Well, small I business. have something. Well, speaking of small business, uh, most of the small businesses. We're a small business. <laughs> I, uh, there is a type of small business that makes another useful burn remedy, and that is honey. Uh, one of the best yes. remedies for treating the natural remedies or de- treating the burn patient is raw, unprocessed honey. Uh, you should always use it in its raw and processed state because of it. it has more antibacterial activity and it also has hydrating properties. And so this is a pretty impressive germ-killing effect and it's thought to be due to a type of pH, an acidic pH that's just not hap- bacteria are just not happy with. Raw honey per- helps prevent, even treat infections in a lot of wounds. It can be used in first, second, and if no other medical option is available, well, you know, a... Uh, Third degree burns. This is how to use honey. Um, you gotta in the first fifteen minutes, you get know, that cooling down that you're doing by adding uh, water, uh, running cool cool water on that. Once you do that, apply a generous amount of honey in a thick layer all over the burned area. Cover the honey with plastic wrap or waterproof dressings, and you can use tape to hold the dressing in place. But do not wrap it all the way around 
Uh, don't use cling wrap, or at least don't wrap in a tight way. Because swelling that's right. going to occur from the burn can cause Lips. undue pressure. Sure. And so especially if you use that saran wrap, or, and if you wrapped it all the way around, tightly around the arm, it could cause a great deal of discomfort or even affect whatever circulation happens to be left uh, in the area of the wound. Now, if the dressing begins to fill up with fluid oozing out of the wound, then change the dressing. So you may have to change that pretty often. The, actually, truthfully, the worse the burn, the more frequently dressings are going to have to be changed. Don't remove or wash off the honey uh, for the first two or three weeks. Uh, Add more honey often. Fill up the deeper layers as you need to. And always have a thick layer of honey just over the edge of the wound to avoid any air getting to the burned skin. So you're you're causing... Remember, air has bacteria, and so you're trying to prevent as much as possible there being contamination of the burn wound. So if you have complete coverage of the area, then it's going to help decrease the infection rate. And at least you need to change the dressing about three times a day. Dealing with burns, I'll tell you, are it's really challenging for not only you, the caregiver, but it's challenging for the patient as well. It's very painful to deal with a lot of these burn issues. And if you can, if at all possible, make sure you keep people away from situations where they might be burned. So let's see. Yes. How are you doing there? I'm doing great. I'm actually doing CEUs. CEUs are Herbal continuing me- educational Her- units, right? Or Herbal something medicines, like an evidence-based review. Oh, perfect. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll find out what they have to say. Probably they're not so not so into it, but it is. Uh, actually, it's, it's. They're okay with it. Good. I'm yeah, so glad they're not. getting their act together with regards to yeah, that. Yeah, and they acknowledge that a lot of drugs have come from natural products. Well, of they course, they have to. They mentioned aspirin, digitalis, uh-huh. morphine, most antibiotics and anti-cancer drugs. Sure. Um, so, yeah, it's actually pretty positive. But what it really talks about, which makes sense to me, is that there's a fear from the public to disclose that they right herbal supplements remedies use, they're using remedies right to their doctor because they automatically assume that the doctor's going to think they're nuts right and ridicule them yeah and tell them oh why are you doing that there's no scientific proof well i'll say that in some cases it's actually <clears throat> true i don't know about oh yeah doctors that are just <laughs> coming out of medical school Especially, well, it depends on what you've been doing, you know. Right. I mean, you've been chanting and and running around a totem pole, thinking it's going to heal your broken foot. He he may say there's a problem right. there. Of conventionally trained medical professionals like you and I, I mean, it's sort of rare to have a couple that are integrative in their philosophy with regards to both natural and conventional medicine. So it is... But there's a significant portion of people who are using it. Of course. one thing... A lot of our audience, a lot and us. (laughs) I know, but this goes back to 2012. And also, this is also something that people had to admit. Not everyone admits to their the truth. You know, think about these political polls. Oh, boy. Nobody thought Trump was going to win because every time they did the polls, everyone said, oh, yeah, I'm voting for Hillary. And then, surprise! <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, 
In 2012, more than three out of 10 adults, which is 33.2, in the United States used, they call it complementary medicine. Ah. Is what they're calling it here. Um, complementary so, medicine approaches, so CMAs. I used to use complementary medicine all the time. Every time I saw a patient, I said, hey, you look great. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's complimentary medicine. It's true. It's true. And 17.7% use natural products other than vitamin and mineral supplements. In Canada, an estimated 18% of the population takes natural products other than vitamin and mineral supplements. In other words, they're not counting taking a vitamin C as, you know, taking complementary. As a natural right, thing, yeah. Right, that they So they said... Anything other than that. So that's very interesting. Well, good, good portion of the country. I think it's growing. I really do. Right. And it, I don't know why they wouldn't consider taking vitamin C as a complementary medicine because... Well, I guess. I mean, I it's know. an antioxidant. It's What's the true. difference between, ta- between taking that and taking glutamine or I guess, other kinds of things? You know what? Because so many people CoQ10. Do, do take vitamins and, and those kind of supplements that they would end up with 100%. So they wanted to remove something that's been taken for years and is just really commonly accepted. So they're looking at the trend, they you're saying. They wanted to look for everything other than that, right? Okay. All right. Well, let's talk so a little. So writing some interesting things. I, I'm so glad. <laughs> I hope you will chime in here. I will share. All right. Share, all. yeah, because yes. I'm sure there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Wait, I have to say one thing. Okay. The cam. Includes a wide right. We're just talking about complementary. Yeah, I guess they've they've moved the A around. Cam includes a wide range of products, including natural health products and practices such as prayer. Oh wow! Chiropractic, homeopathy, and massage therapy. Wow, and this is they're including prayer. And this is in a conventional medicine continuing education unit. Yep. Wow, very cool. It is. All right, well, that's that's really interesting. You know what? Let's talk about something else now. In the typical zombie apocalypse movie or TV show, that if you've been watching The Walking Dead or something like that, you probably see a lot of gunshot wounds, broken bones, all sorts of terrible things, uh, knife wounds and stuff like that. But off the grid, you know, minor conditions are probably going to be the major detriment to the performance of a lot of activities of daily survival. And one of these is... The ingrown toenail, and that's also known as onychocryptosis. Wow. Well, you probably have never heard of that before. You probably heard of ingrown toenails, but not onychocryptosis. Well, I have a cure. You have a cure what? Cut it off. Cut your toe off. All right. Okay. No, cut the nail. Oh, cut the nail off. Okay. <laughs> cut your foot off. Cut your leg off. No, there are some people that just, like people I know, that just have... A nail that grows in the wrong direction as it's growing up, it grows sideways too. My dad has this problem. All right. Well, you just yes. went to the very end of my article. I'm just of my, saying. Of my talk here. I'm just saying. But yes, you're right. <laughs> that is something that is what you would do if you have no other choice. But, I'm, <laughs> but before we go to the very end of this talk, <laughs> let's go ahead and talk a little bit about generally – about this kind of situation. So uh, you guys out there, you're a bunch of rugged individualists, I'm sure, probably think the toenail problems are no big deal. And, of course, that's until you have one. 
And if you have a major ingrown toenail, you just say ouch. Ouch is right. You, you know, when you have to be at 110% efficiency just to survive, you don't want to have to be in pain every time you take a step, right? So in the worst scenarios, you got to realize that ingrown toenails are just the beginning. You can start having skin ulcers. You can have blood infections, also known as septicemia. You could lose circulation to an area that's known as gangrene. And that, of course, you know, happens more often on the very tips of your extremities, fingers and toes. So this is something that's an issue. Now, you may not know what toenails are made of. They are made of a protein called keratin or alpha keratin. And it's a substance that forms claws in animals and also the covering of hooves and horns. And when we refer to issues that involve nails, it is called Ungual, that's medical speak. If you ever hear somebody say, I got an ungual infection, that means I got an infected toe. And it comes from the Latin word for claw, which is unguis. The nail consists of a, d- a number of different parts, and they inc- that includes the nail plate, which is a hard covering of the end of your finger and toe, what you consider to be the nail. Uh, the nail bed, though, is the skin directly underneath the nail plate. And it's made up of skin, dermis and epidermis, just like the rest of your skin. And the superficial epidermis actually moves along with the nail plate as it grows. And you may actually notice, if if you're an older person, you may notice that there's some vertical grooves on your nails. And what these do is they attach your skin, the superficial layer of the skin, the epidermis, to the deep dermis as the nail grows. And in older people, you can actually see these grooves pretty easily or or maybe in young people if you look closely enough. And in this nail bed, you have all sorts of blood vessels and nerves, you know, just like you have in your skin. You have all all the things other than hair, I guess, that run through the nail bed. Now, then you have the matrix, the nail matrix, sometimes called the germinal matrix, is the root at the base of the nail, the portion that's under the under the cuticle, the skin that surrounds the uh, base of the nail and, and the sides. And, and that produces, the matrix produces the new cells for the nail plate, for what actually looks like the nail. You can see a portion of the matrix if you look at your, uh, at your nails in the half moon looking thing that is right at the very base of it. And that's it's lighter than the rest of your nail and it's called the lunula. So you'll see that right at the base of the nail plate. And it's the lunula that actually determines the shape and the thickness of the nail. If you have a curved matrix, it produces a curved nail. If you had a flat matrix, it produces a flat nail. So my matrix I'm looking here is sort of curved, so I have a, uh, a, a curve to my nail. Now, an ingrown toenail occurs when the edge of the nail grows downward and into the skin of the toe. And that occurs for a lot of different reason, reasons, but... Poorly fitting shoes, poorly trimmed toenails, those are the most common causes. Uh, Usually it's the big toe affected, but really any toenail can become ingrown. The skin along the edge of a toenail that's ingrown appears sort of red. It gets a little swollen. It could be painful. It will be painful. uh, And it could feel warm to the touch. And these are signs not only of pressure on the skin, but also the beginnings of infection. So if you don't treat it, the condition worsens, even leading to maybe accumulation of pus as a kind of uh, abscess-type formation. Let's talk about your shoes. Now, shoes that are either too tight or too loose can cause ingrown toenails. If they're too loose, it causes continuing 
pounding of your big toe against the inside because your foot is moving within the too big shoe as you walk. Now, if you have shoes that are too small for your foot, and ladies, if you wear high heels, you may know what this is like. You have extra pressure that's placed on your toes, which prevents normal nail growth. So that's one big issue. And proper trimming is another. Nails that are not trimmed properly can can definitely cause ingrown toenails. And this happens when your toenails are trimmed too short or you cut your toenails in a rounded fashion instead of straight across. That's actually interesting that fingernails should be actually cut in a rounded fashion, uh, but not toenails. Toenails should be cut straight across. And the edges, if, if you don't cut them correctly, the edges of the nails will tend to curl downward and go right into the skin and cause you a lot of pain. Ow. That's right. Now, those are yeah, <laughs> like your sound effects. I know, and that and that hurts. Now, these issues, you know, wearing bad shoes, uh, poorly fitting shoes, and improperly trimming nails, like you can fix those. You can buy shoes that actually fit you, or, or you can decide you're going to cut your nails appropriately. But there are some less avoidable factors that cause ingrown toenails. Heredity is part of it. Uh, injuries that occur medical conditions. Some of these can cause ingrown toenails. Some people are born with nails that are curved and tend to naturally curve inward. Those people are going to have a lot of ingrown toenails. And injuries to the nail bed, if you whack your toe with a hammer for some reason and it damage your nail matrix, it can cause ingrown toenails. Because the germinal matrix, if it is normal, it will grow normal nails. If your germinal matrix is curved inward or damaged in some way it could cause new cells that are not normal and are deformed in some way and can grow right into the skin. People with uh, diabetes uh, or other illnesses that cause poor circulation, that's an issue as well. They are at high risk. A diabetic can experience nerve damage, not even realize that there is excessive pressure being applied to the toes by badly fitting shoes. And or may, may not even notice that the nail is growing into the skin. Of course, in normal times, you got podiatrists, you got orthopedic specialists that you can visit to deal with the problem, but off the grid, you got to deal with it by yourself. And so here's some tips on how to treat an ingrown nail. You soak the foot in warm water with Epsom salts. That's something really good for an ingrown toenail to soften things up maybe three to four times a day. Uh, in between soaks, you want to keep the toe dry, though. Uh, you use an antiseptic to decrease the bacterial count in the area so that you don't have a cellulitis or an infection in the soft tissue around the nail. Uh, you want to place maybe a small piece of moist cotton or dental floss or even maybe a little piece of a toothpick under the nail and to, to get it away from the skin. And sometimes that may help it grow away from the skin. And of course, you don't want to wear tight-fitting shoes. You want to maybe consider wearing sandals on this toe, uh, this damaged toe, until you feel better. Now, at some point or, or another, however, you may have no choice but to intervene more aggressively. And in these circumstances, you may have to, as Amy mentioned, remove the offending segment of nail. So in that case, what you need to do is take the ingrown curved side of the nail, then uh, you're going to go ahead and try to numb the area as best you can, and you're going to cut about one-fifth of the nail plate width. Not, not the length, like the part that you cut when you're cutting your nails, but the width so that you can get out all of the curved area. Right, the part that's under the skin. 
you might have to cut all the way down to the base of the nail in some cases. And this is basically what you have to do when the nail matrix is abnormal and just curves so much that even the base of the nail grows out curved and digs into the skin. So this procedure, by the way, is a lot more easily done after injecting some numbing medicine into the area. It is painful to have it dealt with. Now, I will say that if you have lidocaine, that's great, but avoid lidocaine with epinephrine. The epinephrine causes the circulation in fingers, for example, and toes to be compromised. That could lead to gangrene due to loss of circulation, so it's something that's important to know. Uh, if the toes infected, antibiotics are important. Maybe triple antibiotic ointment is helpful in general, but oral antibiotics like Keflex, Fishflex, uh, clindamycin or fish sin or amoxicillin, fish mox forte, these may be necessary. And for more information about antibiotics in general, well, we'll talk about that in future shows. And we've talked about it, of course, in past shows as well. Now, if there's a portion of the nail that's cut off, patience is going to be required because it's going to take months for the nail to regrow. So that, if you have a genetic tendency towards ingrown toenails, be prepared to deal with recurrences. They are things that occur from time to time. But I'll tell you, if if you can, wear your shoes that fit you, wear properly fitted shoes, shoes that protect the toes. So, you know, you want to, in general, unless you happen to already have an ingrown toenail, you'd like to have shoes that do protect the toes. You got to manage your medical conditions, make sure that you have good circulation, don't develop diabetic issues with regards to circulation. And if you're older, make sure you also keep things clean in, in your lower extremities and make sure you teach appropriate foot grooming methods to your kids so that they know from a very early age what the appropriate way is to trim your toenails. So this is something that we find very, very unusual, unusual to find a kid that knows exactly how to do things just right. Most of these kids, if they cut their toenails at all, they don't cut them the right way. So make sure we, we got to instill a culture of medical preparedness. And part of that is making sure that grooming is appropriate, that good hygiene is appropriate, hand washing, respiratory hygiene, all these things are followed. If we could do that, then we'll have better luck keeping healthy in times of trouble. Hey, we don't have much time left, but I do want to mention that we are beginning to formulate a schedule for our classes in 2019. If you have a group or a church or a school or a municipality that wants us to come speak or wants to take or if you want to take one of our hands-on eight-hour classes well you know what we are here to help you we want to make sure that we teach people not only the right way to do things but the judgment as to when something should be done when something shouldn't be done things like suturing or other kinds of wound closure and also teach you wound care, how to stop bleeding, how to identify things like pneumonia on stethoscope. We talk about a lot of stuff in these eight-hour classes, and we would like to come to your town if we can get a good number of people that are interested in coming. The classes are never too big, about 16 people, and we have had a lot of great feedback with regards to them. So, uh, I think that's something that you might consider. Just go to the website at doomandbloom.net, go to the classes page, and it has all the information there. 
my gosh, just about everything, penetrating wounds, hemorrhage control, and we're going to be teaching you how to use various, I mean, doing a lot of hands-on stuff. We'll be doing tourniquets. We'll be doing Israeli bandages, teaching you how to use those. We'll be doing suturing and stapling. We'll have a, it's a whole day. How to use SAM splints. How to use SAM splints. It's going to be intense. If you are really serious about learning how to Unless, be a caregiver in times of trouble. Did you mention that we also have this? The suturing and stapling class. Yes, I mentioned within that. that. Yes, I mentioned that. So it's a whole Sam, big, on your... whole big thing, and also you get <laughs> some of these materials to take home with you as well. So I it's hear a... your voice, but not always what you say. Okay, How's well, that? You... <laughs> well, isn't that nice? I love you. That's not complimentary medicine. I don't feel complimented. Hey, I'm trying there. to study here. All right. Well, in any case, in any case, what I want you guys out there to do is to just go to the main page of the website at doomandbloom.net, click the button that says classes on the top of the main toolbar, and you will come away knowing stuff that you didn't know before. I wanted to say just a little bit before we go, we just have a couple of minutes left. It's important to think about what the basic things are that will increase your chances of survival, especially from a medical standpoint. So let's assume a calamity has occurred. You've survived. Power grid's down, going to be down for years probably. And you were a good prepper and prudently stored all these food uh, items and equipment to garden and uh, medical supplies. And you're safe. you have a shelter and you're a fine strapping young individual, no medical issues, reasonably intelligent. Unfortunately, you don't have the slightest idea what the first thing is that you should do to ensure your future future survival. I'm going to tell you what that is, is to not be a lone wolf. That is actually the very first way to help assure your medical well-being. When we talk at Expos and elsewhere, we show a picture of in one of our talks of something called the thylacine, sometimes called the Tasmanian tiger or a Tasmanian wolf. People wonder why we choose a a photo of that animal, which is a pretty forlorn-looking thing, instead of a red wolf or gray wolf or a Siberian tiger, for that matter. And that's because the Tasmanian tiger or wolf is extinct. And if you try to go it alone in a long-term disaster, you're going to be too. You have to realize that you've got to have a survival group, even if it's just your extended family. That's essential if you're going to have any hope of keeping it together when things fall apart. I mean, if you look at shows like Naked and Afraid or Alone or some of these other shows, survival-type shows, well, you can see that it's possible to survive, but it's a pretty miserable existence. So I have to remind you guys there are going to be activities that are going to be pretty hard to imagine in, in a remote setting or in a survival setting. You're going to have to stand watch over your property. You're going to have to lug gallons of water from the nearest water source. You're going to have to chop wood for fuel or get some figure out some other kind of fuel. You just have to think about what you actually have to do. And take up one of those Home Depot buckets, five-gallon buckets, fill it with water or some logs maybe, firewood, and walk 100 yards with it. No, thank you. After staying up all night, <laughs> standing outside your house. And you know what? You'll get terrible. A, you'll get a feel, the feel about what you might have to go through on a daily basis. It's a miserable existence if you have to do all of it yourself. Not only is it miserable, but it's going to negatively impact your health. It's going to decrease your chances for long-term survival. You're going to be exhausted and sleep-deprived. And you're going to be a very easy target for not only hostile forces, but bacteria as well. Your immune system weakens when you're exposed to long-term stress, 
and you're going to be at risk for illnesses that a well-rested individual could easily weather. And if you can only have enough people to divide labor and responsibility, that's going to make things more manageable. And this is much more possible if you have a group of like-minded individuals that help each other. And you can't possibly have all the skills needed to do well all by yourself. I mean, even if you're Daniel Boone, the truth of the matter is, is that he brought people with him that also had skills. So if I am a doctor, I can take you apart and put you back together, but I probably can't do carpentry. I probably couldn't build a cabin very easily, or at least it would look like a mess. So it would be pretty, oh, pretty funny looking cabin. Oh, I think we cabin. can figure it out. I think we can. We've figure seen it out. a lot of cabins in Gatlinburg. That's right, that's right. Well, we do want to. We always we try. Can remember some of them. Yeah. Well, we always techniques. try to add some skills. We're master gardeners for our home state. We have a, a ham radio license. We've raised tilapias, food fish. So we have some skills, but you know we haven't raised livestock, for example, nor have we ever been in charge of the security of other people. And there are those that have done these things but could use some of the skills, medical skills, that we possess. And if you can put enough people together with different skills, then you put together a village. A village that's filled with people that will help each other in a crisis, and that's what you need to have. There's no time like the present. I encourage you to communicate and network, put together a group of like-minded people. How many? Well, the right number will depend on your individual situation. The ideal group will have people with diverse skills, similar philosophies, and unless you're already in such a community, you might think it's impossible to find such such a thing, but that isn't the case. Our good friend at, uh, Tom Martin at American Preppers Network, or Tim French at Americans Networking to Survive, ANTS, A-N-T-S, for Tim French, or maybe even your local church, there are probably other people who feel just like you do. Start there, and you're gonna, I guarantee you're going to find people that share your concerns. That's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones, Amy Alton, ARMP, also known as Nurse Amy. Thank you so much. And have a happy Thanksgiving weekend. Love you guys. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. days of terrorists, active shooters, and worse, every school, workplace, and homestead should have the equipment to save a life. The First Aid Bleeding Control Module is meant to provide the items you need to stop hemorrhage. It's compact, lightweight, and has easy-to-read waterproof instructions. If every teacher's desk, worker station, and car or truck had one, have no doubt it would save lives. Available at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net.